0: Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Be a leader in loss prevention by implementing integrated solutions that enhance safety, reduce shrink, and helps improve merchandising, operations, and customer service. Bosch integrated security and communication solutions span zones one through four in the LPRC's zones of influence, while enriching the customer experience and delivering valuable data to help increase retail profitability. Learn more by visiting Bosch online at boschsecurity.com.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. Today, I'm uh, joined by UNLV's Dr. Tamara Harold. And again, we had uh, conducted an earlier crime science episode talking about crime place networks and the incredible value in understanding the dynamics of place and crime, but how places are related and enable crime crews and individuals to um, move and store and transact and meet and plan and chill out and hide out and all these sorts of things. So it's just incredible work. Tamara and I really, really appreciate all the, that you've done over the years and a lot that you've done with, uh, with Professor Eck, of course, at Cincy. And, um So we thought what we'd do now is um, tap into your expertise on what we know and uh, around cr- uh, the crowd science, um, particularly, though, from a situational crime prevention standpoint. So welcome to Crime Science, Tamara.
2: Thank you so much. It's so great to be back.
1: Excellent. So I thought what we do is maybe walk through it a little bit. And of course, our intent here is to help the practitioners better understand so that they can better, where it's possible, prevent and handle and recover. And then again, plan again for what comes their way. In this case, um, some of the some of the disorders they're dealing with that's on the extreme. We've had employees, as you know, shot and stabbed and beaten and Uh, The same with even shoppers um, in the parking lots or law enforcement that are there trying to help um, and and so on. So it's been a a brutal and ugly scene. Some of our members have lost one to two dozen store locations, totally destroyed uh, by fire. Um, We were on the on a call yesterday with one of our members who um, they had used concrete pallets and uh, forklifts and things to sort of preclude some of the penetration in the building. And um, sure enough, one of the, the looters found a way in and even knew how to wreak havoc with a forklift. So, you know, there's there's just a lot going on. Their flooding stores are just it, – it's a little chaotic. Um, and in some cases, some, the employees have gotten out of the store – in the nick of time. And, and in a way, it's almost like, um, riders in the old West where a police car will come, you know, zipping up in front, uh, the officer or deputy will pile out of the vehicle and then warn them, Hey, you know, you got like five minutes or you got 10 minutes uh, to get out. So, um, you know, there's been some, some interesting things. We've spent some quality time, um, on emergency, uh, Cluster call with over twenty chains, getting and helping them get briefed up, as you and I talked about a little bit ago, uh, by uh, CIA, FBI, F- and NYPD. Um, recently retired officials who are still very plugged in, um, and then let them share what they're going through. So I thought, when it comes to crime science, what are what are some what's some? Let's say the genesis, and I know there's di- there are different types of crowds. And they operate in different venues. So I'll kind of get out of your way and maybe talk the basics first about crowds.
2: Sure. You know, I obviously, my background is crime science. And um, I think that's how you and I connected a long time ago. And I found that that particular framework, that perspective is useful for pretty much every type of human behavior issue that you're looking at that you wanna tackle. And, and one of the best things about this particular framework and the reason I, I promote its use and I, I talk about it all the time is because I think you can scale it. So everything that you were just talking about, Reed, you were saying, you know, whether it's a one-on-one interaction, you know, whether it's a, a small group interaction or whether you're talking about a really large crowd, including some of the demonstrations that we're seeing across the country right now, the same basic principles hold. And it's it's very helpful because it takes really complex psychological processes and dynamics and it boils them down into some basic principles that if we can ad- adhere to those principles and if we can uh, consider those principles as we're developing our strategies, as we're thinking about how we want to approach things, we much more likely to be successful. Um, and so for that reason, I've 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 loved it. And you know, my work, as you know, I've I've tried to expand upon that um, for crowds in particular. Um, and I have to say, we've been pretty fortunate in the United States in terms of crowds and crowd violence. When I first started my research, I was at the University of Cincinnati, as you know, with Dr. John Eck, and I was studying with John and he was just too busy and the department of justice had come to him and said, we'd really like you to write these problem-oriented policing guides on, on some crowd related issues. And he said, I'm too busy, but I, I know a student. I think every successful professor um, can do this, right? Where they're able to say, Hey, I'm too busy, but I know a student who would be really interested in doing this. And so John did this to me and it was one of the best things, it one of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, John was a, uh, Phenomenal. He, he gave me this opportunity and I, I started my research on student party riots, um, if you can imagine that. So uh, at the time, Wisconsin and uh, some other places across the United States were dealing with these student riots where students were flipping cop cars and setting things on fire. In fact, the dynamics look a lot like some of the um, protest dynamics that we're seeing across the country right now. Um, and, and then that was really successful. So I moved into studying um, spectator violence at the request of Michael Scott at the um, Center for Problem Oriented Policing. And so we started studying spectator violence. But of course, here in the United States, we have incidents of violence, but it's not, we don't see as many, and, and the violence isn't as severe as we see in Europe and South America. So I spent the vast majority of my early research days studying crowds and crowd dynamics um, internationally. And it's really helped me to inform my opinion and um, helped me be useful to um, police and security personnel here uh, because I think they've been dealing with much more serious um, incidents and events for a much longer period of time. And so we've been able to take some some of their lessons learned And best practice and principles and and bring them over here and begin to integrate those into our policies and procedures and just get better at this practice of of crowd management.
1: That's great and good background. I appreciate that. And, and, um, And by drawing on that, on the different types of venues, like you mentioned, especially sporting events and how they're a little different, the crowds are different. Seems to be pretty instructive. And I, I will, I'll be honest, never forget I, when I was traveling the world with the Gillette Company uh, doing research around uh, blade theft um, and it's pretty universal, um, mock-free infusion blade theft. We were in uh, Istanbul. And so what was going on is we went to all these countries and would meet with the retailers and law enforcement all around this issue and, uh, to, to understand it and see what we could do to disrupt these illicit networks. So uh, in this case, we had the meetings uh, went back to the hotel. Um, I was getting ready to meet some people to go for dinner. Um, but out my window, I could literally see down in this Valley, this really neat looking, uh, lighted stadium. And it was their football, right? Soccer stadium. And so it was Russia and Turkey were playing evidently. Well, the next day, yeah, it was really neat. Just from way afar to see it down there, what it looked like. Well, anyway, the next day at breakfast, um, two or three of the guys came in they looked pretty worse for wear and I guess fights broke out all around them and the police just basically started firing tear gas into the stands where these and these guys were all Brits in this case were sitting at nothing to do with anything and so right. they, they they were telling me they've never ever and they you know they've seen some hooliganism. they've never been so scared in their life so uh. sure.
2: and you know that's one of the lessons learned um I think that that's important to consider is that you, the indiscriminate use of force against an entire crowd is really the last thing you want to do, right? It's sort of the, it's the thing that you want to avoid at all costs. And obviously, in some instances and and in some situations, it can't be avoided. But um, you know, early policing strategies in the United States that was very acceptable, right? You just fire. You needed to to do something with the crowd, so you just fire tear gas and you know, you gas the whole crowd. And, and, you know, what we've learned is that we need to be very focused in our approach to managing crowd dynamics and really target just those individuals that or those conditions that are causing harm. And that's a, that was a big shift in perception um, and, and approach that helped us to become more effective at, at managing crowds.
1: Excellent. And a huge point. Um, and I went through back in an earlier life, I went through a little bit of law enforcement training. Uh, in the crowd control part, and you know, being in Florida, there's a lot of a lot of opportunity for things like that. And then uh, the Florida Army National Guard, briefly during my army, went through some of that training. Um, now, in that case, it, they were trying to separate the bad actors or move people from dangerous places, or separate two crowds that are at you know against each other, they're adversarial, and things like that. Now, I'm not sure how sophisticated. That was probably 25 years ago, but um, how sophisticated it is now compared to them. But I saw, hopefully, they had learned some lessons like you're talking about, Cameron, sure. that, yeah, let's not just start firing away here. Let's have some kind of strategy here. Um, so let me talk a little bit about one thing I really got a lot out of, and that is uh, you the 2011 book that you edited and and, and wrote in, uh, Preventing Crowd Violence, Um uh, a lot of good stuff in there. I did notice uh, what you were talking about. Uh, primarily, there, were, there was some good research around the European venues and some of the things they were going through. But really, the, the article that uh, looks to be penned by you and, and uh, Dr. Eck um, had some really neat tidbits, and I could we could spend you know two days on it. But I thought it was really interesting. One thing you point out, and there, there's a crowd, but there there are members. Of the crowd right you and i work on within and between group and individual differences and things like that so maybe talk a little bit about that that big difference between hey there's a crowd and there are members of the crowd and part of it we just talked about right you don't just shoot at the crowd
2: absolutely and so you know it's 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 a bit like the way we are trying to describe the community right when we say the community wants this if it assumes that we're all one, right? We all share the same perspective that, you know, we we all come from from the same backgrounds and we want the same things. And that is simply not true. And, you know, when you think about a crowd, it's just a a smaller community and and the same principle holds, you you know, you have various people um, who are often there. They might all be there generally for the same reason, but even then you can't say that that's true. Right? So you think about a baseball stadium crowd just to use uh, the stadium example we were talking about earlier and say you know everybody's there to watch the baseball game well if you've if you've ever studied stadium crowds you know that that's not true right because you're going to have you're going to have a proportion of people in there who are like me who are there for the 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 beer and the peanuts right um and so everybody when you when you think about a crowd um you're right it's collections of people now very rarely are they individuals right Most people attend events. So when we're dealing with crowds, most people attend events or go to places with a small group of other people, right? Whether it's one or two or three others. Very rarely do you find individuals, or at least it's less common. I shouldn't say very rarely, but it's less common that people just go to things on their own. They're usually with another group of people. And this is why if you ever have looked at, and I'm sure you have read them, the, um, crowd dynamics modeling where they try to model evacuations or they'll try to model movement of crowds in very specific um, locations with physical obstacles and see how crowds move and they kind of treat it like water like water molecules but in reality those models are never perfect and the reason for that is because again we're with these small groups of people so even in a, a crowd panic situation i'm trying to stay close you know, to two or three other people that I know. And that changes the dynamic. We're not all acting as independent actors, right? You have these smaller groups of individuals within a crowd. Um, And so it's something to consider when we're trying to manage the movement of crowds, when we're trying to message to crowds, um, that people are often acting within small groups within those crowds as well as well.
1: I think that's a huge observation, and and one that's probably actionable in a lot of ways. And it's it's interesting how you how you work that in. And, uh, I actually have a big you know my little card here with questions on it. One of them was around agent based AI, right? We we worked with another university a little bit on that on for active shooter killer, you know, active attacker um, with all, and there's just infinite number of variables as you know you can you can change. And and uh, one of the faculty from UCL over in London came over. And spend some time with us but um so maybe a little bit more about that that's that's fascinating and usable that you're you know this this crowd is moving and flowing and doing things but it's not like you say a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand dots it is but yet many of those dots are connected and clumped together and so they're going to move in a way that they're trying to keep contact and connected to each other and I wonder how that, anything spring to mind, how that might be useful for either side, a law enforcement practitioner that's trying to understand to protect the group overall and what they're trying to do or, and or um, our practitioners as well that are trying to protect a place and their people in and around that place. Anything spring to mind?
2: Yeah, that's a great, great question. And I, I think we, it deserves further consideration and probably a lot more study Um But I can tell you that it comes back to our our last conversation together where really things are networked, right? We talked about places being networked, but people are certainly networked. And it's interesting. I've seen a few video clips of uh, some person in authority trying to issue some sort of command for somebody to do something and that person isn't doing it and they don't understand why. Right. And it's because that person is waiting for somebody else or is looking for somebody else or is panicked because, you know, they, they can't, they can't find their bearings and they don't know where the other people they've come with have gone. And so, you know, I think it's important, you know, in, in any type of emergency situation to consider how, how people are networked and consider that people are likely wanting to move in those groups. And if you attempt to break those groups apart um you we can run into issues right people are, are less likely to be cooperative uh, or voluntarily comply with what we're asking them to do so when we're thinking about how we want to move people we need to take that dynamic into consideration
1: no that's that's significant um, one of the calls another one i just debriefed um i think it was two days ago and these guys um are in their buildings, right? These are big, big retail stores, and uh, they're in a place that where they just have not yet opened those stores because of the, uh, you know, the COVID nineteen situation, um, and so they're boarded up. So they boarded them up, and one thing they noticed compared to their their colleagues at some other chains, okay, uh, competitors, but as I think you and I have talked about in the LPAP world. Uh, we worked very, very closely together, even the most intense competitors. Um, but they had two different tactics because what happens, they were observing this, right? This is uh, just anecdotal right now. But they noticed that the that the, particularly the crime crews or the ones they identified as Antifa because they had Antifa on their mask uh, or something else, Those those people would peel out of the crowd and they would go to a location that was boarded up. Okay, and most of them were and are, um, and this is in New York City, um, but they would go to the ones that they thought were vacant, right? They weren't as interested. If they saw people in, if they saw one, they might. If they saw just a group, they they didn't seem to. Uh, So one chain, their people, they had them come out of the store and kind of stand in close proximity to each other. And like you're saying, they formed their own little group around the store, they weren't actually, of course, going to tackle uh, looters and rioters coming their way that were trying to be violent. Um, but they just had that presence, that show of force, but yet mostly to show, hey, we're, we're with this and we're here. Um, they didn't seem to have any problems. Their stores got hit because they had the same plywood or particle board and, you know, boarding. But that case, they came with breaching tools and an interesting dynamic, you probably know, that some of these groups pre these brick piles all over the place, all across the country, almost simultaneously, as well as, I guess, some breaching tools like wrecking or crowbars. Um, but they didn't know they were inside. So they started trying to pull the boards off. They were able with loudspeakers to say, Hey, we're in here. There's a ton of us. We're, you know, this and that. Those people took off from that, that location. Any, any thoughts around we're, we're trying to figure out ways that we can help communicate, you know, hey, we are increasing your effort, we're increasing your perceived risk of uh, detection, and we're going to try and reduce your potential reward and things like that, right, under situational crime prevention.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to think of, I mean, certainly the more we can manage those dimensions, right, the, the, more, the, the more effort, the greater the risk, um, the more we can reduce the rewards and eliminate some of those provocations and excuses, the more effective we tend to be. Um, and I have a secondary framework that I developed out of working on crowd-related issues with the situational crime prevention framework that I, has, I found really useful from the psychological perspective. Um, and especially when you're dealing with Diverse crowds, where you might have some of the individuals that you were describing inside of a larger crowd, um, you know. Because again, we, when we apply these cr- these crime science principles, we ac- apply them across the board because we try not to distinguish between who is the troublemaker and who is not necessarily. We just assume everybody has the potential to do bad things, and so we're going to change that. we're going to alter those dynamics so that we just make doing bad things a less attractive opportunity. But the other thing that I found really helpful, um, especially when we're trying to roll out some sort of procedure or policy, um, and we want people to buy into it and to listen to our messaging and to to do things voluntarily is this model that I use when I'm I'm training crowd venue managers that we call um, RDFC. And RDFC stands for reasonable, disarming, focused, and consistent. And it it goes something like this. Here's the Cliff Notes version. So we often, you know, if we can allow people just to be as they are, that's great. But every once in a while, you know, we need to put restrictions on behavior. And so when we think about those restrictions, the first thing we need to ask ourselves is, you know, is this a reasonable request? Or could we get them to behave in a manner, manner that's appropriate you know using some asking them to do something else that's perceived by, by people as being more reasonable right so we start there and we say okay what will people perceive to be a reasonable request and i think right now is a great example of how we have to think through these things because of the mask ordinances right so some people see that as absolutely reasonable and other people see it as some sort of infringement on their rights. I know we've been seeing this across the country. So there's the reasonable aspect and let's assume that we have to ask them to do something like wear a mask in a store, right? The second thing that we wanna think about is not just what we're asking them to do, but how we ask them to do it. Just like uh, we were taught when we were little, right? It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. And that's the disarming aspect of it. You know, people and you and I have probably studied this in our, in our past um, at length, but the whole verbal judo Right That they would teach law enforcement officers i 'm sure that you were exposed to that um, back in the day, right so so how can we be clever with our words so that when we have to ask somebody to do something, we do so in a way that 's disarming isn 't causing people you know to, to react negatively to whatever it is that that we 're asking them to do um, and then in that sense, when we 've asked them to do something we 've done it in a disarming way we can 't always please everybody right so sometimes people are going to to cause trouble, cause problems, um, and continue to resist and continue to not be compliant. So when that happens, we have to be extremely focused. And this goes back to our crowds and our groups. So you know when we do have to intervene, when we do have to remove an individual, um, when we do have to target a particular, you know, issue, person, condition, we have to be very, very focused in our approach. And that, in that last dimension is when we're doing this, it is so important to be consistent in our approach because we need to be able to set expectations. You know, when I walk into a retail store, especially the larger chains, I have a very specific script in my head, right? Of exactly, you know, I know the store, I know the layout. I, you know, I'm familiar with you know, the employees, even how they dress, right? You, you can pick out an employee because you know that that employee wears a certain type of polo, a certain type of, of pants. There's a lot of consistency and consistency promotes, you know, it, it reinforces predictability and predictability is really important when it comes to gaining compliance, getting people to do what it is that we need them to do, right? Because if, if they perceive us as being erratic and, uh, and unpredictable they're more likely to behave in the same way. So just like those situational crime prevention dimensions where we can alter opportunities, as we're doing that, if we can be high on those four dimensions of being reasonable, disarming, focused, and consistent, this really gives legitimacy to the policies and procedures we use to to try to manage behavior in more locations.
1: No, I think, it, you know, good. I love, and all these acronyms or models, as you know, are typically very useful for all of us. Um, to help us remember, but help us understand the concept and and how it's going to play out. Even though in the heat of the battle we may not remember all of it, but we might remember, hey, reasonable, uh, consistent, um, you know, things like that 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 they might that they might call upon, or we might not heat.
2: Absolutely. And yeah. I really feel like these models are extraordinarily helpful in the planning phases for these things. Okay. So, okay. You know, we have when we have sort of policy for dealing with a non-compliant guest, right? Um, we would want to look at that policy and say, is there a way to make this more reasonable, more disarming, more focused, more consistent? Um, and then that better prepares us for <laughs> instances like this, where there's just a lot of chaos, and we're doing the best we can, and we're making split second decisions and flying by the seat of our pants.
1: No, it's excellent. It may be, you know, the idea of kneeling and we've seen, uh, you know, you can imagine watching a ton of video here in the last uh, week and a half, um, trying to just understand probably in the way that sports coaches do, right. Breaking down plays. Um, we do that anyway with a lot of things that happen. And now the same thing, and there's tragically no shortage of video to watch, but, um, things like kneeling, you know, where an officer or particularly a leader, decides you know what I'm going to kneel now I know this is polarizing there's some uh, practitioners are wait a minute no that's being subservient that's not you know by you doing that you know you are you're now making yourself subservient and you're not now in a position of authority others say no I'm connecting I'm trying to humanize uh, who we are we represent you we are you we're we're citizens we're just now let's say law enforcement officers or in our case, uh, asset protection, uh, personnel. Um, so any thoughts around that connection and does that fit into your model that you were describing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and certainly when they take that knee, right, it's a very, it's a very disarming response, right? So, you know, we're asking crowds to, uh, you know we're saying you can protest but please protest peacefully that's the request right and i think most people would assume that's a really reasonable request um but the way that we make that request do we say do we say you know you must if you're going to protest you must protest peacefully or are we you know joining with them showing some empathy you know maybe in this instance where somebody Takes a knee and says, "Listen, you know we're here to protect you and your rights, but um, you know we we all need to stay peaceful, and you demonstrate that yourself. That's that's a very, I think, in many respects, very disarming, right? And it's hard for people to get angry when they see you doing that, right? It it really takes the wind out of the sails for the people who want to, you know, target you as the enemy. So, yes, absolutely, Um, and I think." You, you've seen it. The, the leadership across the country, everybody's approach is, is different in many different ways. And sometimes that's because the context is different. Um, and sometimes that's because they they might be adhering to these principles um, a bit differently. Uh, but I, I can tell you that, uh, you know, all of the crowd managers that, that I've worked with across the country, when when they... When they adhere to these principles, when they review what it is that they're planning to do and they reconsider and really push themselves to think harder about you know how to be a little bit better at this, how to get a bit more effective at doing this, it, it it's phenomenal um, what we're what we're able to do. So yeah, I, I think we're seeing some of this definitely in the instances that you described across the country.
1: I think one thing that's also interesting in listening to you, but um, you know the use of drones. Um, I had the opportunity to go over when this uh, this uh, I guess it's called alt right Richard Spencer spoke on campus at, at UF, and and UF really did not want obviously the, this to happen. They don't want controversy. They don't want all kind of things to happen or be identified with anything, uh, one way or the other. Um, but under the state law, they you know they had to make the venue available. So. They spent weeks and weeks, thought they could get not have it, and then they still did. So they spent weeks and activated some mutual aid packs and had law enforcement from all over the place come in, and they organized. But they had a couple things because I had some, I had a lot of access to understand how what was going on before, during, and after. Um, but they had a lot of intelligence that they knew. Well, are there going to be right wing people? Are there going to be Antifa or Revcom here? Um, Who are they? What do they look like? Where are they coming from? What's their chatter and all those sort of intentions? What are their capabilities? You know, are they armed and what would they be armed with? And what's their intention um, and likelihood? So, um, but I noticed a few things. One, the use of drones. Now, I was thinking between you and I, of course, as researchers, how can we get or encourage others to see if they could secure drone footage from some of these events to look at the dynamics? It's better than agent-based AI, right? Or some other modeling you're actually looking at that now you, we would all need a lot of variables around the context as you're saying there's so much there's so much different about each of the events even in the even though these things are probably starting the same hey we're we're here because we would like to change some perceptions and some minds and and some actual practice you know that's what this is about um but we see other things we're here to create dissent you know mistrust we want to erode confidence and authority. We want, you know, we want to damage and destroy. We want to just steal stuff So, or whatever else it might be. But I, any thoughts around research that can be done in the heat of the moment or later ex post facto here using some of the video uh, that we could get from drones or, of course, the media and so on?
2: So you mean using the drones themselves to, to record the crowds and, and um, study them from there or to use them to identify... Dangerous dynamics and intervene.
1: I think that in our case, um, as researchers, right? Yes, after the fact. All right, did we see what what was going on, and then what was the you know the stimulus, the response, the counter stimulus, and response, and things like that? Um, if we know a, a little bit about what's happening, um, as you're saying, what I saw during the event here on campus was like you're talking about. That was to spot people that. The groups that were clumping in groups, some an individual or groups that looked like they now had weapons, so uh, we're moving aggressively toward another individual or groups.
2: Yes, um, uh, I'm not an expert in in the drone um, realm, although I have colleagues at UNLV who've studied um, police use of drones extensively, and it's fascinating um, from a a public perspective. Um, what people find acceptable and unacceptable sometimes it has to do with the with the actual um, design of the drone. So some are very aggressive looking, right? Like little hornets, you know, flying above you that are, are scary looking, and, and others are are can be quite pleasing. They make them look like little happy uh, ladybugs or something, and and the reaction that people have to that is really interesting. And related to that, recently with the AI incorporation, I know. Um, Out in Colorado, where there's a lot of people trying to enjoy this beautiful weather during this pandemic, obviously city officials are concerned about social distancing, um, even outdoors, and so they're using drones and AI to detect when people are less than six feet apart, and then they're issuing these warnings from the drones, you know, please separate, please remain six feet apart. And I, I just find that fascinating. I'm There's so much work to be done in terms of people's perceptions of that and whether or not that's effective and, you know, how we can better leverage that technology.
1: Yeah, no, excellent. Um, so I that's uh, an interesting, you know, we've talked about this before as well about dosing and it's not what you do, but how you do it. And and uh, we've been working a lot on vehicles and parking lots that are there to deter or disrupt criminal activity, simultaneously maybe reassure the uh, legitimate place users, right? The shoppers and employees and delivery people. Um, now, what does that look like? And so our particular live view model that we've got is steel so that we can, we, we've we uh, produced some different uh, magnetic skins. So it can look like a civilian, you know, it could be yellow, it could be blue, it could be this, or it could be, look like a Gainesville police vehicle, right? It's got the badge and it looks, so we we're trying to understand you know how does that the differential appearance, as well as the the location and things like that, help them? You know the bad guys see, get, and fear it, and the good person notice it and recognize and be reassured. So the same thing is very fascinating with the drone drone appearance.
2: That's fantastic. Yeah, and that's phenomenal research. I can't wait to see that um, when you guys come out with that. I think there's a lot to be learned with that again because. You know, when we do have to ask people to do it, what's the most effective way to do that? And you know, how do we gain buy-in and gain it quickly? Um, and knowing how people think and how they perceive uh, the tools that we're using is critical.
1: Absolutely. Um, so I'm trying to think. To me, this is these are some of the main principles we were looking at. Um, you know, we've heard uh, police officers and civilians shot uh by somebody or somebody's in the crowd pipe bombs that went off or pipe bombs that were placed in frozen water bottles and these types of weapons um but i i think of of primary concern right now uh for the retailers are how do we um better God, it sounds terrible armor up our locations their locations um to to safeguard anybody that might be inside and then of course try and maintain that location intact and And we talked before this uh, podcast how so many of these retailers were already wounded, terribly, horrifically wounded by the um, COVID-19 pandemic and total or mostly or partial shutdown um, of their business. And and now this in the wake of opening and a lot of the merchandise that's stolen during looting events um, is not the real financial problem. It's a for sure financial hit. Uh, and it creates a lot of problems with their supply chain and so on, but it 's the incredible amount of damage that's done to the facility and the and the cost of the rebuilding and repair is is off the charts and and a, a real tragedy here is it looks like the majority of of businesses that have been destroyed and burned and are continuing to be are locally owned, people of color and others who their their dreams there have been destroyed um and but i know from just the chain standpoint this could do in a couple of of the ones so any thoughts uh applying situational crime invention a little about crime uh, crowd science excuse me uh, within the crime science realm uh anything else anything else Tamara, that we should be thinking about doing trying to better understand about uh crowds uh individuals and in, in small groups within crowds and how to maybe better deter and disrupt Uh, or not, not provide incentives to protect.
2: Sure. I, you know, in particular, I think three of our dimensions are really critical right now. One of them you just mentioned, which is effort. Um, And use the phrase armor up, but in general, we need to somehow secure our locations, right? So that we can minimize damage or if possible, prevent people from entering and causing damage and, 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 causing the types of harms that ends up being very costly um, to the businesses, but then, you know, has all sorts of secondary ramifications because it it influences our ability to open and to keep people gainfully employed. So there's so much in terms of the effort aspect, that's really helpful Two of the other dynamics that are interesting to consider right now. um, And just as we move forward and, and we, we become better at thinking through these issues. Um, Obviously risk is reduced um, at the moment simply because masks are so acceptable, right? So you can have an army of people marching toward a facility in masks and that's not going to be considered strange, right? Everybody's wearing masks right now. And um, I, I think we've talked about Clark McPhail before, just an amazing crowd science expert Uh, discusses the anonymity that people feel, um, obviously when they're just within a crowd, right? Because the crowd provides cover and you can disappear into a sea of people. But now you have a sea of people that all have their face covered. And I think that this complicates the dynamics. The other thing that we might wanna think about is some way to leverage that provocation um, uh, mechanism if you will, um, or that element of the opportunity structure. I had a friend, um, just as an example, who was dealing with an open air concert venue. I um, mean, he was really frustrated because he had a huge lawn seating area. And, you know, lawn seats, it had, you had a really diverse crowd in those lawn seats. You had some young people, but you also had older individuals. Um, you know, you had children. Um, you, you just had other types of vulnerable populations that that might be up in these areas. And he, and he was lamenting, he was saying to me, what can I possibly do to keep people who are trying to, I know this is very 90s, but mosh, right? Or, you know, set fires, do other types of harm away from these people. And we had talked about, and, and I know that this has become quite common now, but they have these sort of family zones, Right. And one of the things that we played with that, that ended up being really interesting and highly effective was putting pictures on the outside of that, that tiny fence that they used to separate the family zone that would deter people who wanted to use harm. And so we called it the stroller effect, right? If you put pictures of strollers on the outside of something, these young males who were intent on, um, you know, being aggressive and causing harm, really wanted nothing to do with that, right? They didn't want to be over there near pictures of strollers. It just wasn't wasn't their thing. And so it it deflected these individuals um, simply because of imaging that was used. And although I don't have any solutions um, for your listeners at the moment, I think maybe if we think around this issue, we could come up with some really creative ideas for how we might display or change the the exterior of some of our facilities or display images that make us a much less attractive location um, that people might want to target for these types of behaviors
1: I really like that a lot and I appreciate those thoughts Tamara and um, you know we've been working on uh, social media messaging to do a little bit of that persuasion right under the persuasion science where we're saying hey you understand your loved one's work here or shop here and things like that but but not really thinking visually uh, uh, for the actual venue or space or the place itself um and the stroller idea or the the workers that are local people not necessarily their faces that broadly but it, but it, i love that idea of communicating and we've thought about that even with the boarding up this isn't a hurricane right so it doesn't matter what hurricane the the plywood looks like but it might to right. your point really make a difference in in crowd dynamics um and and one thing i would say too here as we get to the end is that a lot of the video review i've seen some really heartening videos where local people i saw i believe it was a cvs that that this these groups that look like antifa look like it said on one of them's hand, uh, backpack but um this african-american female she jumped in front of them and she wouldn't let them approach that cvs they were kind of getting ready to come in there almost like wolves held at bay momentarily. And mm-hmm. I mean, a flood of other young African-American men, young males came in and they stood side by side in front of her. Um, and I've seen a few of these types of scenarios. I saw a young African-American man with a bullhorn or, you know, loud handspeaker down in the South Florida area. Uh, There was a a group of what uh, looked like, again, one of those outside agitator groups, the hijackers we're calling right now. They're hijacking these, what were supposed to be peaceful uh, demonstrations or protests. Um, And he's going up and down telling them to disperse. You're not with us. This is not about, hate. you need to move on. You need to get out of here, you know, kind of thing. So um, those are interesting things. Can we leverage and understand and encourage? Look, there's some positive things that are going on here that probably needed to happen but not the, all these people that have come in here are, are, are leveraging and taking advantage and hijacking these things. So good. Absolutely. Perfect. I really appreciate that. Well, I want to thank you again. Your time is invaluable and uh, you're in high demand because of all your expertise. And uh, I want to thank you again, Tamara, for another fantastic episode. I, I wish the best to you, Tamaris, to, Maris, to uh, all your colleagues there and um, stay safe and let's stay in touch.
2: Absolutely. You're one of my favorite people. So never, never hesitate uh, to reach out. I will always have time to talk with you. uh, And I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you again. And thank you, Kevin Tran, our producer, and to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. Uh, Please let us know any questions, comments, suggestions, ideas, uh, things that we can do to continually improve getting the uh, translating science to practice. So, everybody be safe out there.
0: Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Office Prevention Research
1: Council.